how is it that we can create a true dialogue that means that we're actually having meaningful conversations where we're both talking and listening to one another. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Dina Lippmann and Professor Jack Wertheimer. Dina is a Chief Strategy Officer of the Azraeli Foundation in Canada, which is the largest non-corporate philanthropic foundation in the country. Prior to joining the foundation, Dina spent 10 years in a variety of senior roles at UJA Federation of Greater Toronto and served as Advancement Director at Sunnybrook Hospital. Dina was the first non-American to be awarded the David and Arlene Blitker Fellowship at Hillel International. On a volunteer basis, Dina served as chair of the Board of Governors of Beth Sedek, the largest conservative congregation in North America. Jack is professor of American Jewish history at the Jewish Theological Seminary. He writes about religious, educational, and communal developments in American Jewish life. His most recent book, The New American Judaism, How Jews Practice Their Religion Today, is a winner of the National Jewish Book Award. He is the author of two recent reports on Jewish philanthropy, Giving Jewish, How Big Funders Have Transformed American Jewish Philanthropy, and Grantees and Their Funders, How Professionals and Jewish Not-for-Profit Experience Working with Grantmakers. In this episode, we talk about the findings in Grantees and Their Funders, as well as some of the resulting recommendations from a special task force that Dina served on. The study and the resulting recommendations inspired JFN to launch a new project in partnership with our friend at Upstarts called Granted. You can learn more about it at www.jgranted.org. Take a listen. Hi, Jack. Hi, Dina. It's great to have you, and uh, it's great to have you to speak about a topic that is very important, I think, for the health of the philanthropic ecosystem as a whole, which is the relations between grantees and grantmakers. In other words, the key of a successful uh, philanthropic project is how good those relations between grantees and grantmakers can be, and therefore it begs the question of what we can do to make them even better. In that vein, we started a while ago a project that uh, was intended to survey grantees and grantmakers about that relationship. And then we started a process a while back to first research what grantees and grantmakers were saying about their relationships. And then a parallel process or a simultaneous process to think, how can we take those findings and transform them into a program that can help that relationship improve and be better. So it's really a pleasure to talk to you about this process. You participated in it in different positions, like Jack did the uh, original research and Dina was part of a group that tried to translate the findings into concrete programs that we can do. So let's start with you, Jack. What do you think are the most salient 
findings in terms of the relationships between grantees and, and grantmakers. So I, I actually just want to begin on a, on a more personal note, and then I'll respond immediately to your question, and that is to note how gratifying it is. It's not, it's not very often that an academic like me has the opportunity, not only of engaging in research, but in seeing ways in which that research will be acted upon. And I know that the Jewish Funders Network has been working since I completed my research on rethinking and also creating new opportunities for the grant makers and the grantees to interact in different ways. So that's an overall comment. The larger picture is as follows. I, I interviewed a large number of professionals working at Jewish not-for-profits, and I also interviewed grant makers, primarily individuals such as Dina, who work at foundations that take a strong interest in, in Jewish uh, causes. I also spoke to a number of individual philanthropists as well, because it was important to me to hear, if you will, both sides of the story, which is one of the important takeaways, I think, uh, for this as well. And what came across, first of all, were on the part of the grantees, those professionals working at Jewish not-for-profits, an enormous amount of appreciation for the support that they get from philanthropists. And I'm not only talking about monetary support, which obviously is very important, but also input that has proved to be very constructive. And it's important that we frame our conversation today uh, with this in mind. Uh, the purpose of the report, and certainly the, the outcome of the report, is not to damn anybody, but rather to clarify that there are some areas of misunderstanding, of tension, and there's some things that can be done about those areas. But the larger picture is that the overwhelming majority of professionals make it clear that, the, for that from their perspective, they're working with some very constructive uh, philanthropists. Uh, as one of these professionals put it to me, I wouldn't have stayed in this arena and devoted the past 25 years of my life to this uh, were that not the case. That having been said, to only talk about the positive things is also to miss an opportunity. Uh, and I don't want us to miss an opportunity. And so in the course of this report, I also raised a number of issues that frequently loomed large on the part of people on the grantee side of the story. And uh, they talked about some uh, important areas of friction, if you will, or of, of tension. Some of this had to do with the kinds of expectations that grant makers uh, of all kinds, and especially foundations, have of the grantees when it comes to the whole process of inquiring about the interest of a philanthropist in supporting a particular project, uh, let alone the process of applying for a grant and then writing reports, regular reports, updating the grant maker. The grantees were not opposed to doing any of those things, but they found that the processes often were overly complex and overly burdensome. And so that's one area uh, that needs exploration. And I should say parenthetically that so much of what I heard from 
professionals working for Jewish not-for-profits has been voiced outside of the Jewish community as well. None of this is unique to the Jewish scene. A second area and related to this that I would talk about is areas of either miscommunication or very different roles that are played by people on both sides of the table, and they don't necessarily appreciate the complexity of one another's circumstances. To just flesh this out for a moment, on the one hand, we have grantees uh, who clearly need financial support, and they will come to grant makers often with very clear proposals, and in some cases they will come to grant makers with a laundry list of possible proposals and say to the grant maker, you, you tell us which interests you. That doesn't work well for people on the grant-making side, especially for foundations. Uh, and the other area of friction has to do also with the whole question of renewal and for how many years should a, should a grant be made. On the grantee side, they would like to have a longer time frame in which to complete a project. From the grant maker side, there is the perspective that it is not our role to sustain uh, your particular not-for-profit, but rather to launch a new initiative. And once that is launched, we move on to launching other initiatives with other grantees. So interesting. So we we have here like different buckets of points of friction. One has to do with communication, how we communicate with one another. The other one has to do with, I would call it administration, sort of the process of applying for a grant and reporting seems burdensome for the grantees. And the third one has to do with alignment, with sort of not really understanding what the funder wants and what the nonprofit can offer. Dina, is there anything here from a funder perspective? Is there anything here that surprises you? I don't think that there's anything that surprises me. I would say in the three buckets that you just put together, though, mm. uh, communication and alignment go together. And I think mm. that as I read through Jack's report and read the feedback from grant seekers, there was an ability for them to be more transparent about their feelings than they would ever have if they were talking to me directly. So when it comes to things like alignment, in a spirit of, a commun of communication that is a true dialogue, you can work together to reach alignment. In a paradigm where the communication is really just two monologues happening in parallel, you're not going to find that alignment. So creating a framework that changes what the communication will be, I think can go a long way towards that. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the responsibility of the funder to listen to the grant seeker, but it also goes the other way. And it's it's not just listening, it's listening really to the tachlis. What is it that we're saying? It's not, that's not an area that we fund. Okay, I'm gonna wrap myself in a pretzel to make something that I wanna do sound like something that you're gonna fund. Mm. To, to seek an artificial alignment. That doesn't serve anybody's purpose. And, so and funders see through it. Yeah. Certainly. So how is it that we can create a, a true dialogue that means that we're actually having meaningful conversations where we're both talking and listening to one another? So one of the questions then is, in terms of dialogue, in terms of communication, 
Maybe one of the reasons why it's so hard to have an honest dialogue is because of the power differential, right, between funders and, and grant seekers. You're not going to want to jeopardize your source of funding by saying certain things to, to grantmaker. So, Jack, did that come up in the in the conversations? Very much so. Very much so. Uh, and, and I'm glad that you raised this because it comes directly from Dina's uh, point as well. And that is, there is a power imbalance that's not going to disappear. The question is how it can be managed. Realize that I promised anonymity to everybody whom I spoke with. Uh, and that's what made it possible uh, for me to hear things from the grant seeker side that uh, the grant maker necessarily uh, won't hear. And as you said, the question is whether structures can be created for more open communication uh, between the two sides. But there certainly has been a lot of, uh, in, in my conversations with the grant seekers, uh, this whole question came up repeatedly. And uh, not to over stress this point, but in some cases also I heard about abusive relationships, um, which is kind of the most extreme side of this yeah. power imbalance as well. To be precise on that last point, you didn't hear that about major foundations. You heard that about mostly about individual donors, correct? That is correct. It was primarily individual funders, but there is one area that I did hear about when it came to foundations, and that is that um, complaints that there are younger staff members at uh, some of these large foundations who speak disrespectfully to uh, professionals who've been working in the Jewish community for many years. And these professionals uh, are somewhat appalled to be spoken to that way. Uh, I raise this issue, first of all, not to generalize to all uh, younger staff people, but also because this is an area uh, where, uh, again, outside of the Jewish philanthropic world, uh, their efforts underway to, to work on precisely this kind of issue. And we can do that within the Jewish sector as well, philanthropic yeah. sector too. And, you know, and also understanding, I guess, Dina, you could you could shed some light on this, that the pressure that that young professional in a foundation is under, because on the one hand, he's sort of the buffer between the trustee or the principal and the nonprofit. And in many cases, those younger staffers of foundations are put in really impossible situations, right? And I think if you unpack that even a little bit more, and most certainly not to excuse or apologize for the situations that the grant seekers identified when they said that younger staff members were seen as disrespectful, but there's a little cheekiness that sometimes comes because there is that power imbalance. Yeah. So who are you to tell me with 25 years experience in the field, mm. you a year and a half out of grad school, know it all, except that that other person holds the power. And so I think it's, it certainly is incumbent to, to make sure that younger staff wear that power appropriately and recognize who they're talking to, then that becomes within staff foundations. Some staff foundations have one or two staff members. In staff foundations where there's actually enough of a team, then that becomes a management responsibility. And teaching that humility of the fact that our grant seekers are not just there to play to our whims. They're colleagues with an enormous amount of expertise and knowledge that can move the partnership forward. Yeah, and, and sometimes I'm thinking you know, about this notion of better communication 
In some cases, it's simply to, to understand that there are dilemmas, not between good and bad, but between good and good or between bad and bad. Like, Jack, you were talking about the grant cycle, like, and this is something that I hear a lot at, at JFN, which is a complaint that grant cycles are very short, like three years or two years, and then funding disappears. And, and that is understood generally as bad for the nonprofits. But the other side of that, we don't hear articulated very clearly, is that funders need to have these shortage cycles, because if not, they can't respond to the proposals from the same grantees. In other words, if you want to come to me with new projects every three years, as you do, I need to have shorter cycles, right? So they're not Manichaean good and bad solutions here. It's everything about permanently finding balances between conflicting goods or conflicting bads in a way. Yes. And what I hear, especially from the the grant maker side of this story, especially those in the foundation world, is that the state of affairs is not something that is well understood, let alone appreciated by the grant seekers who are primarily concerned about sustaining and finding the resources to sustain their institution. But uh, there's another sustaining question, and that is, on the grant maker side, we will not have the money available to fund new kinds of innovation. And as you just said, including perhaps your own uh, new kinds of innovation, if we keep on supporting the exact same causes. Uh, but, but then it also leads to some interpersonal types of questions too. Uh, one striking example of this uh, that I came across in speaking with someone uh, working for a foundation was the stare, as he put it, or I'll put it differently, the dirty looks that, that he gets from former grantees uh, who had gotten lavishly supported for a period of time. And through no fault of their own, the grant ran out and the foundation decided to move on and to support other kinds of, of programs. Now, I suppose the issue I want to raise here is we keep on mentioning this word communication. And I very much think that communication is an important aspect of this story. But let's also appreciate that communication may not solve all of these issues. It can help. But the truth of the matter is that there are different interests that are at work here. We can't necessarily smooth all those out. We can try by getting these different people around the same table and talking to each other. Right. And, and then communication is just one aspect of it, but also the creation of some tools could help. Like if you think about the bureaucratic burden, you know, that people complain about. One of the things that we keep talking about, for some reason, it never you know, gets off the ground is can we do sort of a common app? Can we do things to simplify processes? And that's good for everybody. Like, of course, it will reduce frustration in the grant seekers. But it will make life easier for the grant makers too. Dina, from you or your colleagues, have you seen any experience in that? So sense? perhaps. I mean, it might be aspirational to think that having a common application would be of benefit to all involved. And there certainly are pros to it. In organizations that we look at in other places where there are common applications, we're science funders as well. So we hear a lot about what grant seekers have to say about science funders, particularly government. You know, it's it, it's another favorite punching bag. And right. so it's a challenge. The other thing is that, yes, there could be elements that would be unified across different organizations. But if each foundation, if each funder 
has a particular area in which it's trying to have impact. It's trying to seek innovation. They should be able to ask questions both on a grant application and on reporting that help it understand if it is meeting its goal in the philanthropic investments that it is making. And so I can see pros, I can see cons. The answer might be some sort of hybrid version where there are components that are similar. Right. And and actually, I was thinking that with COVID, we're actually seeing in a way, you know, it's terrible to say it this way, but we are seeing in a way a golden age in terms of good relations between grant makers and grant seekers. The, the funders stepped up and, and we researched that at JFN. The funders stepped up very generously, not only with more money, but also doing many of the things that you were saying, Jack, like simplifying processes and making grants more flexible and and in general being much more open to the needs of the grantees. So do you think this sort of surviving COVID or do you think that things are going to go back to quote unquote normal when the crisis recedes? And Jack, do you have any data on that or just anecdotally? Well, as you probably know, historians make for terrible profits. Um, <laughs> but that that having been said, uh, I think that, that this experience may very well lead some of these foundations to decide to, to stay with the new course that they've uh, em- embarked upon. So there is some, some reason to, to believe that that's going to be so. But the other element of this is your project. Uh, by your, I mean the JFN's project which in part is involved in precisely this type of issue of working through together between uh, the grant seekers and the grant makers, uh, a modus vivendi that that works for both in a much better fashion. And I think you certainly are correct in saying that as with so many other things, the COVID crisis has accelerated certain processes that were underway but not very far underway. I mean, I've seen that in other areas as well. Look at the whole field of education and the way in which it's taken to Zoom and and other such uh, online media. So I think that that there is a, a prospect that that will happen. Kind of the caveat here that I would put in is we know that uh, some of the largest foundations uh, have acted this way, but we don't know, at least I don't know, whether individual philanthropists uh, who have taken also to expecting more reporting and, and more detailed applications for grants, whether they will go down that road too. Yeah, and Dina, do you see any long-lasting effects of COVID in your practices as a funder or your colleagues? What, what is your temperature there, no pun intended? I think that there are a few things that we can look at when it comes to the pandemic. One of the things is that as much as we can say right now in January 2021, it's lasted longer than we ever expected. I mean, when we packed our offices in March and said, "Okay, so this will be a few weeks. But the needs in the community and the work that will need to be done are going to go on for years now. We haven't yet hit the peak. And in certain elements that have been and you use the term, Jack, in, in your report, the sexy projects and the not so sexy projects and poverty being one of the ones that is much, much harder for the Jewish community to wrap their head around. And certainly the pandemic has illuminated the issue of poverty within the Jewish community and the community at large. And that is not going to go away so quickly. 
one of the things that I've heard is that after the 2008 crash, the major needs in poverty hit two years later because people weren't finding jobs and savings had been depleted. So I think that there are going to be very long lasting effects in poverty, in mental health, in challenges of education interrupted. There will be children who have thrived in this situation, and there will be children who are just going to take enormous hits on their academic trajectory because of losing, in essence, an entire year's worth of schooling, Zoom or not. And so So, there's going to be a major shift because of that. What I hope in the COVID silver lining that will come out of this is that the fact that the changes that we had to make immediately hopefully will last through those next couple of years, like things like funding for general operating, understanding the needs for infrastructure investment, not just I'm going to fund this program, but if it requires IT support, that you go find that funding from somewhere else. Oh, wait a second, you need to buy Zoom licenses. Not all of your staff have laptops to work from home. Oh, we realize that to do your work, you actually need infrastructure. Hopefully those are the kinds of things that will outlast the recovery. And those were some of the things that people were complaining about, specifically the lack of attention to infrastructure needs, correct? People don't like to fund, quote unquote, overhead, and maybe COVID will change that to a certain extent. Possibly, possibly. The distinction that that I have come across through these interviews is the distinction between the funders who are interested in sustaining an institution as opposed to funding uh, innovation. And I'm not convinced that those who are most concerned about funding innovation are going to become sustainers over the longer term. I think we are seeing some of the sustaining work going on, and this is what Dina spoke about in the human services arena. And also, um, I think, actually, I hope when it comes to Jewish education, because uh, I very much agree with you, Dina, that the children have been amongst the biggest losers during this COVID period in terms of their education. But I'm not convinced that that mindset is widespread and it might be useful. I'm sure the JFN is going to continue to monitor this in terms of its own members as to what their ongoing thinking will be. Now, from my observations, I tend to agree with you that there will be an openness to at least allocate a portion of your grant making to capacity building ideas. And there are great things going on now. For example, in Chicago, you have a capacity alliance, you know, that funders are contributing to. And the Federation is contributing to. And I think from my own anecdotal evidence, I'm mildly optimistic. In terms of optimism, let's go to what we can do about it and the process that we've done with Jeff and to try to translate this into a program. And Dina, you wanted to say something. So I want to just go back one point when it comes to the big bad term overhead which I've never liked. Staff in many times is the program. But again, this is an area where true dialogue and true transparency, it's a direction that many have been going towards. So there's this model of quote unquote overhead, which is a levy of a certain percentage on top of a grant that is deducted off the top. And there's no transparency in that. And what is it going towards? As opposed to operational costs that are transparently included in a budget that shows that we allocate a certain amount 
for valid reasons towards these infrastructure needs. And it's not just capacity building. Paying your rent isn't capacity. Paying your rent is infrastructure that you need. If you're going to see a client in an office, you need an office. It's the lack of transparency that just comes from 15% is taken off the top. It's our policy. There's been a knee-jerk response to that. And again, so is this the point now where we actually say, okay, now we understand, now we've come to actually articulate what we've always understood, that you actually have to do this somehow. And so now can we start to, moving into a new era, say, how can we be transparent with each other about what that looks like? Understand. Yeah. And if if I may come back to your question, Andres, we, we are seeing a great deal more collaboration occurring now within Jewish communities. And whether we can call the partnerships or collaboration between different players who in the past had not sat around the same table, I'd like to believe that that's not going to go away so quickly after COVID. There are all kinds of reasons why it might go away, but enough of the players, and by players I'm referring to federations, I'm referring to synagogues, I'm referring to rabbis who sit around tables now that they had never sat around before, just the the various processes that have been uh, created by the federation movement, for example, to bring together professionals who are situated in different organizations to communicate with each other. And then this whole JCRIF project of some of the largest uh, foundations. I'd like to believe that that's going to continue, but that's an act of faith on my part. I really don't know whether it will. So, so that takes us to not to trust in an act of faith. <laughs> we, we try to do something about it and yes. actually launch a program that we call Granted, which is to improve the relationships and the, and the connections between grantees and, and grantmakers. And it was designed collectively by grantees and, and grantmakers. And uh, Dina, you were part of that process. What do you think about the product of that process, the projects that came up, the ideas that were generated? So a lot of the things that came out of it are the things that we started with about communication, about trust, about shared initiatives that if we come to the table and have real conversations that are constructive and open is the only way forward in a safe space, really looking at things that are concrete. That to me is promising and and exciting. What I think that the report laid bare and what ended up coming out of the process that we went through is that just starting the dialogue was part of the process. And so now to actually have something real to come out of it and to be the next step of how we can look at shifting uh, old paradigms. You know, we spoke truth to what was happening in a way that hadn't happened before. And so now there's real toughness about, okay, now what do we do with that? Right. And Jack, what's your take on where that process led to? First of all, I'm I'm impressed that you were able to build a partnership with Upstart, which gives uh, entree to uh, a group of grantees or grant seekers that sometimes do get overlooked. And it's important to hear from these grant seekers. This relates to a larger point that I had wanted to raise a little bit earlier, and that is there are also generational issues at work here. And that's why I'm particularly delighted that Upstart is involved with this. Obviously, Upstart includes various startups, but many of them have been created by Gen Xers and millennials, and it's important to involve them in this dialogue. 
particularly because for a variety of reasons, they have a view of an inflexible and unchanging and somewhat Neanderthal Jewish establishment, which includes, by the way, funders. And it's important for them to understand that, in fact, the, the philanthropic sector is changing and there are all kinds of new opportunities that are arising. That having been said, I also think the communication needs to go both ways and they need to hear what, what are uh, the concerns and the constraints under which uh, funders are working. And, and I would also add, I think that there, you know, the time is right. And this is something that I've experienced as a professional myself. The the area that was addressed in the report about harassment and sexual harassment and inappropriate behavior was certainly laid bare in the report and is certainly work that has been done by the Safety Respect Equity Coalition and is certainly in the spotlight when we look at diversity and inclusion and equity. And to launch this at a time when these are conversations that we all must be having, but the faster we have them together and the more unified we are in our messaging about that, the more we can actually affect change. So when it comes to things like harassment, if we all collectively say, this is not acceptable, and so we will not accept your money if you're going to speak in a way that's disrespectful, and other funders say, we hear that, it's creating those safe spaces and creating that dialogue and actually creating a base that says, this is our standard, and and this is what we need. And even though questions like harassment and you know abusive behavior or inappropriate behavior are different in degree and in nature than being disrespectful to a professional it still relates to that question of power differential so it, it makes sense to bring them together because what you're doing is you're changing the culture and creating a more respectful relationship in all their dimensions like not necessarily in one aspect but everywhere because if you solve harassment but then people still talk disrespectfully to one another. So you didn't really solve the underlying problem. So to anchor that into a power dynamic, I think it's important. It also goes the other way. When I was a BBYO director, I always used to say to my participants, if I can't trust you with the small rules, how do I know I can trust you with the big rules? Right. If you think it's okay to speak disrespectfully, then you believe in the power dynamic and the power differential, and then it's okay to actually have that slip into harassment. And so to actually- It's a gateway drug. It's a- It's a a continuum. It's not acceptable. And the idea with with Granted is to have this communication training and and sort of these joint meetings in which you can talk about these issues, but also to produce a set of concrete tools because, I mean, correct me guys if I'm wrong, but I think that there's an element here of people wanting to do the right thing sometimes, but not really having the tools. I would love to be- less bureaucratic, but how do I do that? I would like to communicate better with my funder or to give feedback more effectively, but how do I do that? So I would love for you to comment on this. Like, what is the proportion between the conversations and awareness and actual tools that people need in order to do this better? Well, again, uh, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. Uh, Because in in some of these areas, there have been institutions that work in the philanthropic sector that have already developed some of these tools. 
And if we can learn from them and, and draw upon some of them, uh, that can enrich those conversations. And then we can move on to the next step, which is to ask whether there are some specific areas or issues within the Jewish community that need to be addressed somewhat differently. If what we want is transparency, a big piece of it is also looking at our own behavior. Am I saying the kinds of things to my grantee partners that actually welcomes them to be open and honest with me about the challenges they're facing, the failures that they've had? Because I demonstrate to them that I trust them and I want them to be open because the only way we can move forward together is is in a spirit of openness. So it's incumbent on them to be able to share with me, but it's incumbent on me to set the tone. Right, and that's why many foundations, to their credit, in the Jewish community are starting with, you know, grantee surveys and anonymous feedback forms and and stuff like that that are really helping the, the way in which they work. Right. But to come back to an, an earlier point that we made, foundations, especially some of the largest ones, are already on board uh, with this. Uh, they're working in this area. I think the greater challenge will be with uh, individual philanthropists or maybe some foundations that are very small to get them on board as well. And that's going to be an educational process. I think the key to that process will be their peers, the influence of their peers. Very interesting, because the professionals, more or less, quote unquote, captive market, you could do eventually training sessions and professional development, and, and you have more of an opportunity to work with them on these issues. The individual funders, those that don't have a staff, may be a much more elusive target in terms of how to engage them. Is there any positive stories that you came across that you're seeing now that you want to highlight as good practices, as good examples of things that both grantees and grantmakers can do? I don't want to put the onus only on grantmakers. It's just both sides. Yeah. On the grantmaker side, one of the professionals I spoke with in a high-level position told me about how when a, uh, a new head of a foundation that is an executive of a foundation began his work, he took this professional at the grantee organization out for a walk on, on a beach or a park. I don't remember exactly where it was. Uh, and they spent an hour just talking and getting to know each other. And that opened a line of, of communication that that particular individual had never experienced before. Uh, so just that human interaction, and, and I want to stress that point, there's so much emphasis uh, that's placed upon rationalizing the whole philanthropic enterprise. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to trying to bring greater rationality to the process, but there's also a human dimension uh, to this story. When it comes to grantees, what I've heard about were any number of examples of professionals, staff members at foundations who guided them, who helped them through this process, who reviewed their initial proposals and then the grant application and helped them to strengthen uh, those applications. That's a kind of cooperation that was very much appreciated on the, the grantee side of the story. Dina, any shining examples that you want to share? Yeah, so I'm going to say two things. One, one is that, again, if this is a little something that came out of the pandemic, I've loved Jack's story of the walk on the beach, but I have found that 
the sense of we're all in this together has accelerated the relationships. Any of the new grantees that we've brought on with emergency funding, people I didn't know before, and people I've had long-term relationships with, the pace at which that relationship has elevated, it's unparalleled. You know, I don't think that can be replicated, but I certainly do hope that that trust level that we had to develop so quickly is something that we can keep important elements of. You know, I think about situations where I've had grantee partners call to tell us about a failure and how gratified I am that they feel comfortable enough to do that and how it's changed the relationship. Because what it's meant is that we've been able to talk to one another about successes and failures and challenges and new ideas midstream that we wouldn't have had if all that happened was, well, we'll find a way to make this look good. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that I welcome. And why do you think they felt confident enough to come and talk to you about their failures? I certainly hope that we really do try and foster a relationship of being partners and that we're investing in the initiative, we're investing in the organization, and we're investing in the people. And that we're doing it because there's a compelling component to the endeavor. And so if we're a partner, we need to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if we run into a situation, we've we've had people who've called uh, embarrassed to say, I don't know what to do. We haven't hired. We're not spending the budget as quickly as we thought we were going to. And first of all, my answer usually is, when you created the budget two years ago with a five-year horizon on the project, I would expect and hope that the budget changes because you actually have to be adaptive to reality. But I'll often say, I'd rather you hire well than hire to meet my needs. And so the time horizon of this partnership now just extended because if I committed a million dollars, I've committed a million dollars. So it's now over six years, not five years. We're in this together for longer. I hope that I put that out in enough places to enough people that the word gets around that be transparent, be open with us. We want you Uh to succeed. And so if a failure means that you've learned a lesson and now you're going to do better, so you'll succeed. And Dina has used a, a, a key term here, and that's partnership. And uh, certainly what I heard prior to COVID was examples in which grantees felt that they were treated as partners. And in other cases, they felt that they were treated not at all as partners and their own expertise, their own experience, the many years that they had invested in a particular area were not respected. And so one of the challenges is going to be through this communication process to strengthen the sense of partnership and that people on both sides of the table actually each have something to contribute to this process. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, it's important to to say that this is not about feeling good, right? This is about, I mean, of course, nothing against feeling good and, and respected. And it's really that these things improve the impact of the philanthropic enterprise. Very much so. The, the most successful grants are, you know, unsurprisingly, those in which grantees and grant makers have an open communication, the leadership respect each other, and, and they have, as you said, in a true partnership. So ultimately, what we're trying to do is not make the grantees feel better, not make the grant makers more appreciated, although all that is perfectly legitimate, but we're trying to actually improve the outcome of the philanthropic process in its entirety. Yes. 
the term that came up repeatedly in my interviews was, what can we do to become more effective right. on both sides, to have more effective outcomes? And I think that that's what this whole process is about. Dina, anything that gives you hope from a funder perspective? There is so much work to be done over the next few years as we move into a post-COVID world. And so the fact that this project is coming just at this moment when we've all been thinking about the world underneath us shifting, the timing couldn't be better. We were talking about it before Joe Biden, but build back better, right? If, there, yeah. if our goal is that everything that we do in our communities, in our schools, in our institutions, in our world is to build back better, great. And now we're going to create some tools that will allow us to do that. Thank you, Dina and Jack, for your input. But most importantly, thank you for the work you've done in getting this project off the ground. I think uh, I'm very hopeful because of it. So thank you. Great. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to Dina Lippmann and Jack Wertheimer. You can learn more about the Azrieli Foundation at azrielifoundation.org and more about Jack's work at jtsa.edu slash jack And make sure to visit jgranted.org, where you can read grantees and their funders and find a wide array of resources to help you become an even better funder. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback both about this podcast, but in general, guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at communication at jfunders.org. Keep up with Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I leave you with a quote from one of my favorite philosophers, Martin Buber, who said, all real living is meeting. So keep having meaningful meetings, keep living fully, and join us next time on What Gives.